I'm Melanie Sayward and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Hi there and welcome to The Pink Elephant Podcast where we talk about the most undiscussed issue in the body of Christ today. That despite all we know and have, it can feel like there is something missing in our faith experience. I'm really excited to share on this first new topic for season two because I spent a significant amount of time thinking through and studying this concept towards the end of last year in preparation for my third book, which I'm still going with, all right? It's coming, it's coming. I believe it to be a critical scriptural topic that I can't recall hearing much about from the pulpit in the last 15 years. And if I'm being really honest, I'm not even really sure I've heard it preached. I think it's a topic where I've seen it in scripture and I've gone and had a look into it myself. The topic is seeking. By nature, I am a naturally inquisitive person. So when I've read this word in scripture in the past, even as a teenager, there was something so interesting and intriguing to me about it. I've often found that I gravitate to these verses like Matthew 6.33, which says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. Or Jeremiah 29, 13, which says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, which is actually going to be one of my favorite all time verses. And then there's Matthew 7, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Like what a rich verse, like that All three of these verses are so rich in meaning. You can see that there is this depth to it that we just haven't probably comprehended, right? But the verses, if you really think about it, they speak of purpose and they speak of priority. What will we search for in this life? What will we pursue? What will we look for? The answers to these questions tell us what we believe our purpose is in life and what we believe makes life meaningful. Frequently in scripture, when we see this word seek, it is to give us this simple directive to seek God. 1 Chronicles 22 verse 19 says, Now devote your heart and soul to seeking the Lord your God. Psalm 34.10 says, The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Oh, what a powerful verse. Isaiah 55.6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. And Zephaniah 2 verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. And there are many, many, many more verses like this, reiterating this same basic message. At first glance, it would seem that seeking is a simple enough concept, right? I mean, we read the word, we look for his counsel, we pursue his opinion and his wisdom. That's what seeking is, right? And in a practical sense, that would look like spending time reading the word and and praying each day and, and even going to church. But is it possible that we have minimized this unique word to a set of observable actions? Is there more to the process of seeking than we've thought? Obviously, I think there is. To begin with, there are approximately 10 different Hebrew words and six Greek words that are frequently translated as seek throughout scripture. 
I mean, I have to wonder if the NIV translators really liked this word because it occurs 143 times in the NIV translation. That's a decent hit rate. According to them, it occurs more often than the word forgive, which occurs 121 times. As you would expect, with the richness of both the Hebrew and Greek language, these 16 words have slightly different variations in meaning. Some can mean to pursue, to desire, to look for and to strive after. But it also can mean to investigate, to search, to explore or to meditate. Seeking can even mean just to worship or to pray. And in other instances, it can mean to demand, to ask or request. Now, there are obviously some similarities between all of those concepts and words that I've just said, but they can all look very different in practice. And and as I've mentioned many times, how we practice our faith is my biggest concern when it comes to this podcast. That's where the pink elephants lie. It's not necessarily in our doctrinal beliefs. It's in the practice of what we say we believe. So consider this, that to demand or request looks very different in practice to pursuing or investigating. One is direct. I simply go to God and I ask. And the other may be a long expedition of reflection, thought and research. And what about some of the specific verses, though, containing this word that can be so hard to understand in practice? Like genuinely, how do you seek the face of God? Psalm 27 verse 8 says, My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Psalm 105 verse 4 says, Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. How do you seek the face of someone that is largely unseen? I know that some have, you know, apparently seen Jesus, but for most of us, we relate and communicate with a God we will not physically meet until we pass from this world. Theologians try to help us out too by clarifying that seeking his face is essentially the same thing as seeking the presence of God. That's sort of what it's implying. But for me, that doesn't necessarily increase my capacity to understand the practical implications of such a request. When people say things about seeking God's presence in a church service, I am not necessarily any wiser in understanding exactly what I am doing. And judging by what happens on stage, I'm not sure the leaders are that convinced of exactly how you enter the presence of God either. The interpretation sits somewhere between ethereal spirituality and contemplative monk. What it does tell me, though, is that seeking is multidimensional. It's not just an activity. It's not as simple as having a devotional time and going to church on a Sunday. It's an approach. It's about the perspective and attitude we bring when we do such things. A better way of saying it is, It's not so much what you do, it's how you do it. So then how do we seek as scriptures suggest we seek? First and foremost, when the scriptures tell us to seek God, it means exactly that. We primarily seek God himself, not simply his wisdom or counsel or his likes and dislikes, although this is important too, but to seek God or to seek his face is to discover who he is. 
Have you ever noticed how a newly married couple will just gaze into each other's eyes without blinking or needing to look away? Or maybe you remember doing that with your spouse. It's coming up to 17 years for me. So yeah, I'm, I'm like looking back quite far right now. But you know, those days where you just lay in bed for hours and, and just look into each other's eyes and talk and share and all that kind of stuff. Well, this happens for a reason. This body language is a deep form of emotional connection. Some researchers suggest that it creates empathy between a couple. But what I think is wildly interesting is a study that was done in Japan back in 2016 that noted the behaviours and activities of two people gazing into each other's eyes. The study found that over time and even a short amount of time of frequent eye gazing, neural synchronization began to take place. This means that a specific area of both individuals' brains began to synchronize and even their eye blinking would synchronize. Isn't that amazing? I mean, this is why marriage counselors will often recommend that a couple having troubles or whatever in their marriage begin by looking into each other's face and eyes for a specified amount of time each day or week or whatever it is, right? So what does this mean then when we read something like seek his face? We are being encouraged by God to deeply emotionally connect in an intimate way. We are being encouraged to seek that kind of connection by seeing him with the eyes of the spirit. We are essentially endeavoring to know God emotionally, psychologically, spiritually for who he is. Paul says in Ephesians 1.17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Our knowledge of God is really critical. And according to Paul in this passage, this ability to know God better relies on revelation from God. We are even reliant on him to know him. Like, crazy, right? Our knowledge of God is really important because we're only capable of reflecting what we see, not what we think. Now, you wouldn't think there would be a distinction between what we see and what we think, but there is. I logically and conceptually believe that God loves me. That's what I think, but I don't always know that I am loved. We don't actually live out of our opinions as much as we think. Otherwise, there'd be no such thing as hypocrisy. There is not as much integrity between our opinions and our behaviours as we would like to think. It's what we actually believe deep down in the depths of our soul that determines our behaviours and even what we desire. And those beliefs we have deep down in the depths of our souls, that's what we really see. It's what we really use as a guidepost for interpreting the world and all that happens within and around us. We can only reflect in behavior the truth that we truly see. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. This idea that what we see has possibly the most significant influence over us and who we become is fluttered throughout scripture. In Matthew 6, 22, it says, the eye is the lamp of the body. 
If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Even 2 Corinthians 5, 7 has this same underlying implication. For we live by faith, not by sight. Implied within that statement is the idea that a believer is one that chooses not to interpret life through what is seen and what looks true, but instead with the eyes of faith. Of course, there are many other aspects to seeking. As mentioned earlier, it's a multidimensional word. It doesn't simply mean one thing. My goal in delving into this concept of knowing God was to zero in on one aspect of seeking that is the most common. All right. So as rich as this word is, it's still not the most complicated word in scripture, right? It's not like we're talking about predestination. Why then do we need to talk about this topic? Because something is missing. We have not gone deep enough in this biblical principle to understand how it could genuinely revolutionize our faith. There is this interesting verse in Romans 3 verse 11 where Paul is actually referencing a passage in Psalm 14 and I'll read that one out as well. So the verse in Romans says, no one understands, no one seeks God. And the Psalm 14 verse 2 to 3 version says this, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. How odd. We are being told frequently to seek God and then we are told that nobody seeks God. Yes, this verse was written before Christ, before we had the Holy Spirit, who plays a vital role in helping us to seek. But the truth is that even with the Holy Spirit, it is still reasonably rare for believers these days to truly seek God to the extent that this multidimensional word implies. All right, I feel I need to explain myself a bit here because that statement could come across as really negative, okay? Yes, there are many believers who read the Bible and pray every day and they are more like consistent with all of the Christian things that you do than I am, right? I get it. They go to church, they go to conferences, they listen to podcasts, they read books, they are regularly inputting into their spiritual life. They're seeking God. They seek his guidance and a relationship with him. But as I mentioned earlier, seeking is not necessarily an activity. It's not what you do. It's how you do it. It's how you approach those activities. Your intentions and agenda when you do anything in faith matters just as much or maybe even more than the actual action itself. It is possible to believe but not to seek. So here are a few signs of a person who believes but doesn't seek. Number one, let's start with the most basic form of believing but not seeking. This is the person who might turn up to church but does not read the word or pray. Prayer and reading the word is the most basic level of communication with God. In this scenario, the person is doing the bare minimum, right? They're only going to church. They're just doing the thing that does not arouse question because it looks like they're committed, right? We had a season recently as a couple where I wasn't going to church and my husband was. A lot of that was actually because of this podcast. There were some people that weren't exactly happy about me having a podcast 
And at the same time, I fully believed that it was God's will for me to do this. So I felt like the best thing was, because it was sort of getting a bit difficult, was to just keep away for a bit. We knew we were in a season of transition geographically, and I already had a good idea of where we would be going once we moved interstate, right? So I knew that I would have a church. It was just like a bit of an in-between transition phase. Anyhow, my husband was turning up to church every week and playing the guitar on a Sunday. Everybody assumed that he was going great with the Lord, that his relationship with God was so strong. But, you know, during the whole season, he wasn't exactly picking up his Bible. I mean, maybe a little bit of prayer here and there, but, you know, he certainly wasn't doing that and having a devotional time. But every now and then, someone would ask him questions about me. So how's Mel? Is she okay? We're worried about her. Meanwhile, I was spending up to two hours a day in prayer, reading God's word, reading books about God, pursuing him in every imaginable way, having fellowship with other believers, pastorally caring and serving other believers, praying for them and giving. I just wasn't going to church, right, to the service. This is why for me, church attendance is like the worst way to judge how someone is going in their faith. It's a surface level measure of someone's engagement with God. If you really want to know if someone is seeking God, and I don't really know why we need to know that, I think it's better that we just set an example ourselves of seeking God, then you should go and ask them about that sort of stuff. Don't assume that just because they turn up that they're doing well. So anyway, that's the most basic form of believing not seeking though, okay? Number two, this next one is a little harder to ascertain. The people who read scripture but only do so to affirm what they already believe. This is probably the most common category, and I think this can happen so easily for those who have been Christians for a long time. If we all were genuinely seeking God, it would be commonplace to be constantly grappling with concepts in Scripture because by nature, Scripture is a countercultural text. How are we in the Christian middle and upper class not absolutely struggling with the passages about giving away our possessions, giving to the poor, and storing up treasures in heaven? If we were to truly think hard about the application of these passages out of faithfulness to God, it would require us to grapple and hopefully eventually lead to some change. The reason we aren't is that when we read scripture, we overlook what could challenge us and rather look for what affirms what we already comfortably believe. I think this is the case even when it comes to the preachers we listen to. It's not common for people to listen to preachers that challenge them. It's more common for us to listen to the preachers that can repackage what we already believe in a way that tantalizes us. Being a believer doesn't necessarily make you a seeker of God. And according to scripture, God is much more interested in us seeking him than merely attesting to his existence. Alternatively, let's consider some signs of a person who genuinely seeks God. Number one, they read scripture expecting to see things that they have never seen or comprehended before. Things that may even mean they need to change how they are living or change what they once believed. Number two, they pray desperate prayers. God, show me. Lord, reveal yourself to me. Lord, I'm hungry for you. Lord, fill up my soul. 
These are desperate, relationally oriented prayers. It's the prayer of someone who seeks. Number three, they are frequently working on things that God has revealed to them. Because they're always searching, God just keeps revealing. I have a friend like this and the most common thing she asks me is, Mel, what is God speaking to you about at the moment? What's he showing you? She fully anticipates that God is always teaching, sharing and growing me because it is the nature of her own relationship with God. Again, just because we are believers does not make us seekers. But I would argue that one's belief in Jesus is not so concrete if the desire to seek is absent. In other words, I would wonder how deeply a person believes in Jesus if they don't want to deeply seek him. Let's consider this. Just say I am a lawyer and I'm defending an innocent man of a crime he didn't commit. Now, even if I'm not fully convinced that he is innocent, I would still search out as much evidence as I can to to shed some doubt over his guilt, right? But if I completely believed him to be innocent, the extent to which I would go to identify any little bit of evidence that proves his innocence would be virtually limitless. I would do everything I could possibly do. I would travel across the country. I would interview anyone. I would dedicate my every waking moment to ensuring that justice would be served and prevent him from a prison sentence. Now, if I were really to grasp in my inner being the things that I profess to know and understand about Christ, I might not be able to stand. I would be compelled to bow down and worship this glorious Lord. Now, I'm just talking about what I do know. How about all that could be known about God that is not in plain sight in Scripture? If our spiritual ancestors were as accustomed to seeking God as we are today, they would never have even identified the Trinitarian nature of God because it is not at all in plain sight. This happened because people sought God and his word deeply for things they didn't already know. Now, I don't know how many major theological discoveries like that might still exist, but I wouldn't want to miss it just because I got complacent. So let's go a little bit deeper. I have alluded to this, but underlying the act of seeking is a critical presupposition that we often fail to acknowledge. In order to seek, we admit in thought and action that we don't know all there is to know about God. I know it doesn't sound so impressive, but whilst we might logically agree with this notion, right, we don't necessarily consider what this presupposition implies when we aren't seeking God. So often when we talk about God, we speak of him as though we have arrived at a complete knowledge of him. This, in fact, is the very reason we may not consider the task of seeking so vital, because what need is there for seeking if we've arrived at a place of all knowing? Why weren't the Pharisees able to recognize the Messiah? Because they had resolved in their heart that they knew all there was to know about the nature of the Messiah, and they weren't looking for Jesus. Jesus didn't fit that mold. The truth is, with the exception of a few like Nicodemus, I would wonder if they were genuinely looking for the Messiah as they claimed they were. If they really were looking and searching for the Messiah, wouldn't they have noticed Jesus? Wouldn't it have made them more open to the possibility that Jesus was the Messiah? 
But even though Jesus fulfilled all prophecies about the Messiah, prophecies that they would have known back to front, they did not acknowledge him. This is still a temptation for us today. Maybe it's pride, maybe it's complacency, or maybe it's both. But we get comfortable with the God that we know and we stop believing that there is more. After Job laments and his friends join the conversation, God interrupts them. And for several chapters, like from chapter 38, I think onward for about four chapters, he just keeps throwing these tough, humbling questions at Job. Questions that really he can't answer, right? So these are some examples. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? And he keeps going and going. He starts talking about animals and goats and all sorts of stuff, right? Finally, Job responds and says, Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. That's in Job 42 verse 3. How could we possibly believe that we could capture a full knowledge of God in this lifetime? We can't. But he also promises that he will reveal himself to us if we seek him. So to summarize one more time, the reason we don't often seek God is because deep down we think we know him already. What a terrible tragedy this is. Don't we realize that our relationship with him relies on seeing him as he is? I mentioned all of this earlier. We only reflect what we see. We have no hope if we don't see. We have no hope of growth if our vision of him doesn't grow. See, I think part of the problem is we've been asking the wrong questions. If you ask any given pastor what the most common question is that they have from congregation members, which is ultimately directed toward God, right? But they expect pastors to be able to answer it. They'll inevitably say this. What should I do with my life? What's my calling? What's God's plan? So much of our inquiries revolve around action and choices as though these were the most pertinent questions we could ask. But I challenge you today, this is not the most imperative question for your life. The most important question we could ask God is, God, who are you? God, reveal yourself. God, show me who you are. There will never be a time in your faith journey where God will not be able to either answer this question with something new that you haven't considered before or to shed new light on something you have known. How is it that there is still so much I don't know about what it means for God to be my father? Every couple of years, a new layer is peeled back with regard to what that means. And every time he reveals a new layer, it changes me too. We are not done. We are not done with discovering God. In the next episode, I'll be chatting with another writer, Dr. Omar Joandi, and discussing a massive pink elephant that he's written a book about, which is called Redefining Success According to Jesus. So, you know, make sure you tune in for this one because I actually think that that was one of the most powerful things that God actually worked in my heart last year, right? And I really want to share it with you because I think it could really help people and, yeah, create some freedom for people who are stuck in this kind of success thinking, right? Anyway, but as always, I want to close out this episode with a final thought. 
As Christians, we make this costly mistake when it comes to faith. We assume that the primary purpose of our faith is salvation. Okay, not completely, but a little. Don't get me wrong. It is such an incredible thing that we can even be saved. But thinking that faith is about salvation is like going to the Galapagos Islands and only stopping at the airport. The Galapagos Islands is this remarkable place and it is believed that there are still new species of animals and plants yet to be discovered. In 2020 alone, there were 30 new species of invertebrates discovered around the waters in the Galapagos Islands, right? Around the island. See, the fact is that nobody goes to the Galapagos Islands just to simply say that they've been to the Galapagos Islands. Well, I hope at least, right? The main reason anyone goes there is because of the wildlife. Botanists and zoologists have been frequenting there for decades, hoping that they may simply appreciate the rarest animals and plants in the world. And maybe, just maybe, they might discover something new, something that no one else has ever seen before, to touch something that has never been experienced, to hear the sounds it would make to observe how it breathes. If you knew that your relationship with God could be like this, that it could be one big adventure, like being on an exotic island in a state of constant discovery, would you ever stop searching? Would you ever stop seeking? Would you ever stop looking for more truths about God and who he is? Because God is so much greater than a bunch of islands that he created. There is so much more to God. And I think we may need to repent for thinking that we could ever grasp him and confine him to a neat little package. We need to repent for devaluing him by reducing his infinite eternal nature to a comprehensible idea that we can get comfortable with. We need to repent for participating in all the supposedly righteous activities whilst failing to get down on our knees and seek his face. By far the greatest pursuit in life. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pink Elephant. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or you can check out my resources on my website, meljsayward.com.